All right, well, on today's episode of the Power Podcast, I'm joined by Don Brandt. He is the former manager of gas turbine engineering with GE, and he uh, retired about 25 years ago, but he was uh, very instrumental in the development of the F-Class. And Don, I guess just to get things kicked off, I'd like to have you tell a little bit about how you got into the gas turbine business and kind of what that uh, early days were like. Sure. Uh, I joined GE in 1963 at the Knowles Atomic Power Lab, uh, working on control drive mechanisms for nuclear reactors for the Navy. Became frustrated in working for the government and wanted to get into a, uh, a product line, and the gas turbine intrigued me, so I transferred from uh, the Knowles Atomic Power Lab here in Schenectady to the gas turbine engineering people there in, here in Schenectady also. My principal technical interest at that time was in the area of low cycle fatigue and linear elastic fracture mechanics. Both of those technologies were embryonic back in the 60s. Uh, you had uh, Lou Coffin and GE's research lab doing some pioneering work in low cycle fatigue, and you had the naval uh, engineering people uh, working on the linear elastic fracture mechanics. So what I ended up doing when I came into gas turbine, because of that interest, and because neither of those technologies were being incorporated into the design of gas turbine components, uh, I I brought that interest and that uh, capability at that time uh, into the design of GE gas turbines. I used to hold little classes on applying linear elastic fracture mechanics to rotor design and low cycle fatigue to the hot section parts, et cetera. So uh, I became heavily involved in the mechanical design of the gas turbines and uh, because of that interest, and that just allowed me then to pick up more and more responsibility uh, in the low-level management and then working up to the uh, position of manager of engineering of gas turbines. Back when we started, back when I started, back in the 60s, the uh, gas turbine uh, was a little different in its uh, approach to manufacturing and design to what GE had done back in the late 40s in designing gas turbines for locomotive applications. And it was one of those locomotive uh, gas turbines that became the first uh, gas turbine assigned to power generation in the United States there at Oklahoma Gas and Electric at the Belle Isle plant. Uh, That gas turbine is an ASME monument now down at our manufacturing facility in Greenville. But the the construction, manufacturing, the uh, alloys of, of, of choice, the Design methods uh, pretty much hadn't changed since the late 40s into the uh, late 60s, and even into the early 70s when we designed the Frame 7 uh, machine, which evolved into the current product of the 7E gas turbine. That machine was a very close derivative of the five-single-shaft machine and all the gas turbines that were being developed at that time were really being designed 
for peaking service, those that were being developed for power generation. We, of course, built some smaller gas turbines, two shaft models that were being applied to uh, pipeline pumping. But uh, speaking of the power generation gas turbines, uh, they, uh, we designed them back then largely with a slide rule referencing to Timoshenko's stress and strain using uh, the uh, stress concentration factors of Peterson and handbooks of that nature. We did have, of course, um, application of, of computer design using Fortran, and uh, we would sit and I would sit uh, filling out Fortran sheets by the hour uh, based upon equations that we got from Timoshenko or one of those other references. And then, of course, they would go to be punched in a punch card uh, deck, and they would run in an IBM computer, and that would take a whole weekend. <laughs> and when you, you get it back, if it didn't run, then you had to go back through and check each and every card, every line that you had written in Fortran. It was a real hassle. Bet. But that's what we did back in those days, and um, we were conservative in where we had to make assumptions, stress concentrations and things of that nature, thermal gradients uh, and materials properties. But uh, <clears throat> along about uh, the middle of the 70s, towards the end of the 70s, after we had the frame seven in production, the frame seven model B, which is the first of our gas turbines that had cooling in the first stage bucket. And that cooling was nothing more than radial cooling holes along a camber line of the bucket. So it wasn't anything very fancy. We had used um, film cooling and impingement cooling in the first stage nozzle uh, for a couple of years, uh, but it wasn't very fancy. And one of the benefits we had was a close relationship with the aircraft engine uh, people. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about that. If if, of, if you worked a lot with aircraft engines or if, if they were like a separate department or division or how it all kind of played out there. Back in the 30s here in Schenectady, uh, the uh, military, the Navy, and the Army Air Force were interested in propulsion ship propulsion for Navy and aircraft propulsion for Army Air Force uh, with gas turbines. And there was an effort here in Schenectady to develop a turboprop, and out of that also came a um, turbojet. And uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, GE in Lynn was working on uh, the, uh, uh, the the British uh, radial flow a jet engine that uh, I forget the gentleman's name in Great Britain that had developed and GE was developing it but it quickly became obvious that the large diameter of the radial flow compressor uh, produced too much of a drag for that engine to be successful in modern aircraft that were being developed there at the end of the Second World War but the uh, folks here in Schenectady had produced a, an axial flow turbojet and actually manufactured it for a while here in Schenectady. And so uh, GE uh, quickly uh, stopped the development of the radial flow uh, 
Whittle engine, uh, Frank Whittle, the British guy, and uh, and took up the axial flow uh, jet that was developed here in Schenectady. And then uh, at that point, the folks here in Schenectady, and we're talking the late 40s, uh, were ch- uh, charged with developing a locomotive gas turbine. And they were at that time a department of the large steam turbine business. And when I joined uh, Gas Turbine, we were still a department of the large steam uh, gas uh, steam turbine business. And I'm talking, and that lasted until all oh, the middle of the 1970s <clears throat> when we became a separate division of our own. But uh, the, uh, the the folks here in Schenectady, uh, myself and others, were uh, in close communication with the aircraft engine people. We would go out there and and hold a, a, a review, a design review, if you will, of the technologies we were using, and they would do the same with what they're doing. And they'd come here to Schenectady and, and do the same thing. So there's a lot of, of um, uh, intercourse, and that was especially true in alloy development, super alloy development, and in uh, compressor aerodynamics, turbine aerodynamics, heat transfer. Uh, so those core, if you will, technologies uh, were closely integrated between aircraft engine, and we borrowed an awful lot from them. And, and that, so that, that close agreement, now they were a separate business altogether. Uh, we were still within the power generation business, and, uh, and of course they became their own business of the GE aircraft engines. But that that close uh, communication between us extended uh, well beyond the development of the F machine, and I suspect it's still true, because of course they uh, uh, their their design practices. Uh, uh, yeah, there's just a lot that you can probably learn from each other in in those uh, areas. Yeah, we learned from them such things as heat transfer and alloy development, and they learned from us uh, long-term design practices. We designed for much longer uh, cycles and much longer times than they did. So we worked with them and helped them with what we were doing, and they worked with us and helped us. And in fact, during the uh, development of the F machine, I had uh, established a corporate review board, and that was co-chaired between myself as the design manager and the chief engineer, Marty Hemsworth of Aircraft Engine. And we met on a monthly basis having design reviews. So, And he would bring along with him uh, his aircraft engine experts uh, and to cover the topics that we would be uh, discussing at those uh, reviews. And uh, that practice extended uh, even beyond the, uh, the F development. But so we had a good a, a good relationship there. Yeah, sounds like that would be really uh, beneficial for the the overall development and and things. So, g- kind of going back to the beginning, oh, yeah. when when you first joined the uh, company, what how big was the gas turbine uh, business, and and how many turbines had had been implemented or or uh, installed back in those days uh, when you first joined? Okay, back back in those days, the uh, the number of turbines that had been installed was numbered in, in the uh, one or two hundred. 
most of the applications when I joined back in the 60s was pipeline pumping. Hmm. And uh, those two-shaft machines were very popular for El Paso natural gas and others because they could run a long time. They were very efficient. They had a regenerator on the back end to help improve the efficiency. And some of those machines are running to this day. Hmm. They've got millions of hours on them, and they're still running. Wow. But uh, the gas turbines, the principal gas turbine in our product line was a frame five machine. It was about a, a 20 me- uh, megawatt machine. It was designed for peaking service. The uh, firing temperature was down like 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit, and we'd produced maybe 100 of those. But they, they were a popular machine for the peaking service. Nobody at that time was talking base load uh, gas turbine applications. And were there a lot of other companies that were in this uh, space? I mean, did you have competitors that were also working on gas turbine uh, business? Yeah, our our biggest competitor was uh, Westinghouse. And uh, and ABB was a secondary competitor. Uh, Siemens, it's a big competitor today, Was had maybe 3% of the market. They were very, very small and... The, uh, there wasn't much to be said positively about their equipment, mm. but um, Westinghouse was our principal uh, competitor, and they they kind of matched us in size of uh, of uh, gas turbines, and their their product was very similar to ours, a mobile combustors uh, type of thing, and uh, while ABB had a big silo combustor and Siemens had two silo combustors. We we had the mar- we had the, the largest share of the market, but the market wasn't, as I recall, except for pipeline pumpers, wasn't all that big until that uh, blackout that we had there around '65, the North Great Northeast blackout, mm-hmm. yep. and um, we had uh, the, the, the general manager of, of our department had built a bunch of gas turbines just to have them sitting here in case. And they were sitting out back on rail cars. And the day after that Northeast blackout, those rail cars were gone <laughs> along with the gas turbines. And that, that was kind of the beginning of the uh, uh, the, of the desire for uh, peakers. And they were setting these gas turbines all over the place, out in cornfields, out in the boondocks, uh, and, and, and the rest. Hmm. But it wasn't until uh, Westinghouse developed the 501 machine and we developed the Frame 7 uh, machine that, uh, that that larger size machines, larger capability, larger output uh, became more popular. We were still selling a five-single-shift machine, but the Frame 7 had much more output, as did the 501 that Westinghouse had. But again, those those two machines were the biggest machines. Now, ABB had a machine similar in size, and they became our principal competitor in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Westinghouse wasn't very successful in Saudi Arabia. So uh, when we look ahead, I was just going to say, if we go... 
a little farther ahead now, you have been called the father of the F-Class machine, and I'm sure there's a lot of people and a lot of engineers that were involved in that project, but how did that all play out, and what what led to the F-Class? Well, what happened there was, by that time, I was a manager of a design function. I was not the manager of engineering. I was reporting to the manager of engineering. And I became concerned because the Westinghouse D5 gas turbine had a bigger compressor than we had. Now, we had a, a better turbine. We had better cooling. We had a, a better efficiency in our turbine. Our machines had better reliability than the Westinghouse machines, but they were still competitive. And my concern was, I mean, Westinghouse was no bunch of dummies. They were going to end up... Uh, improving the cooling and the firing temperature and the pressure ratios that, that we had gone to. So we needed to do something uh, to avoid being, if you will, uh, entrapped by this D5 machine. The other thing I became convinced of was that, because uh, a bunch of us were talking about combined cycles at that time, and looking at 50% thermal efficiency. And that had us, a bunch of us excited. And I, our frame seven machine really was not configured for a combined cycle plant. We drove the generator from the back end of the gas turbine. So you had to route the exhaust gases from the gas turbine around the generator into the boiler. Mm. So I determined that what we needed was we need a whole new, not an upgrade of the 7E machine, but a whole new configuration. We needed a bigger compressor, bigger than the 501D5. We needed to drive it out the front end so that we could drive the generator with the front end of the gas turbine and have the exhaust flow directly into the boiler. We needed to apply much better cooling than just radial holes. We, I wanted to go to... Uh, a serpentine-cooled first-stage bucket. The, uh, we were having some problems with the reliability of our accessories, and so I wanted to modularize the accessories in packages and, uh, and have them become more, uh, more reliable. Uh, we were starting to talk about uh, digital controls, and uh, I got all excited about digital controls and, and how we could improve the reliability of the controls so um, I went to work with a layout and went to work with some of the guys that I worked with and, and came up with this, uh, what I called the F machine. I called the F to, so it would be hidden from being behind the E and appear to be an upgrade of the E. It was going to be an entirely different thing. It's only going to have a two-bearing rotor. The E has this three-bearing rotor, and I wasn't about to try to design a bearing in the middle of the machine with a higher pressure ratio and higher compressor discharge temperature and all the problems that we ended up solving in the E, but it was a solving the problems with that mid bearing and that E machine was a real headache. And we, we, we worked diligently. We had fires and everything else. The other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to break away from the uh, old chrome IV turbine rotor and go to a nickel-based super-alloy turbine rotor. 706 was my choice at that time because I didn't want to have to 
provide secondary cooling to a, a, a steel, a carbon steel, if you will, when I would have a super alloy that I wouldn't have to provide that secondary cooling to. So I was in, uh, looking at uh, at trying to improve efficiencies and uh, came up with a way out. And we're, at that time, uh, uh, working with the engineer, one of the things we, we really had at GE, and I'm, I'm sure other places as well, but the thing I appreciated I had individuals. I really had super, super aerodynamicists and turbine aerodynamics. I had first-class heat transfer people that we actually had, had brought in from aircraft engine. Hmm. Uh, I had some materials people in alloy development and working with a research lab here in Schenectady on alloy development for uh, nozzles and buckets so that I, I could depend upon a whole bunch of people that I could go to, and they, they didn't necessarily have an answer for me, but they, they, they said, well, I, I think we can make it happen, Don. I, you know, it's going to take some, some effort and some money, but I think we can make it happen. So on their basis of they think it can make it happen, I I, I took the, the bit in my mouth and, and charged ahead with it. I, I got involved with our marketing people, and uh, I got in a fight with them because they had spent years convincing the customers why a mid-bearing in the gas turbine was a good thing, and here <laughs> I was taking it out. But the, uh, and I, I got involved with, got in a fight with a general manager that said we were going to build 7,000 machines for the rest of eternity, and we don't need a brand-new center line, and, but... Uh, he and I were really friends, even though he was a level above me. We were all friends, as a matter of fact. The whole business at that time were on a first name basis. We, you know, we worked with each other as we as we grew in the business, and we worked with each other socially. And and so, uh, where I got in these debates, they were more debates than arguments. Uh, because of my position, they let me have my head for which I was grateful. Mm-hmm. But while I I can claim to have conceived the F machine, its configuration and a lot of things that were going on in details, but I did not design the F machine. I was a mechanics of materials guy. I was not a heat transfer. I was not an aero guy. I was not a metallurgist. I... It, it, it took all those guys, uh, guys and gals, because my compressor arrow was a, was a lady, Jeannie Place. So there were women involved. I had one fellow that uh, we, we were, at that time, we were starting to develop our own uh, finite element program. And then uh, ANSYS had just gotten into the business, and, and we were starting to, to use ANSYS Finite element uh, modeling, and and, uh, and I had a guy that convinced me that what we really needed was a small uh, computer savvy group of uh, of mathematicians uh, in order because ANSYS was at that time they they had reasonably good programs but the input and output of them was was cumbersome and we had. So he put together a small outfit that reported to me with these 
mathematicians have started writing code uh, for input and output of, of answers. And uh, I went and I convinced my boss to let me buy a computer and we had a big hard drive and all. And so I had this mathematics group there. One of the young ladies decided she wanted to be an engineer. She went back to school and she ended up marrying one of my engineers too. But uh, hmm. So there was a lot developing there in the 70s that was uh, far in advance. Uh, you, you, you didn't see engineers working with slide rules anymore. While they still used Timoshenko, it was only on occasion. They were starting to use finite element models. The, the, uh, the metallurgists were, were learning a lot more about uh, gamma prime strength and uh, nickel-based uh, superalloys. And we even started talking about directionally solidified uh, structures and uh, how they would perform and making sure that the constitutive relationships within the, the elements uh, were such that they were consistent with the way in which the material behaved in the three-dimensional uh, stress field. And that, that 706 alloy, uh, I had a fight with that because another engineering manager, again, that I was personal friends with, he wanted to use a 12-chrome uh, alloy, and I told him I wasn't going to do that. I needed that, that that stuff embrittled with time. and and But making a 706 ingot to, to forge into a wheel the size that we were taking was not at all possible. Hmm. And so I went down to Huntington Alloys. I took my metallurgist, my process metallurgist with me, and met with Huntington Alloys. Now, they're out of business now, but they were they were milling 706 and 718 ingots uh, for use in aircraft engine uh, turbine wheels, which is where I got my idea from. I, did, I didn't come up with 706 because I was so smart. I came up with 706 because I was talking to the aircraft engine people. And so I talked with the general manager down there at Huntington Alloys, and their ingot sizes were like 14 and 16 inches. Well, to get the kind of wheel that we wanted, that that 16-inch ingot had to be, I don't know, what, 100 feet long. We weren't going to upset that. <laughs> it would buckle on you. But I, I talked to them about what we were doing with this F machine and told them what I needed because I had, I had talked with forging vendors like Wyman Gordon, and I needed a 24-inch diameter ingot out of 706. And he had all this, how he didn't know how to do that. And I said, well, would you try it? <laughs> and he agreed to try it you know, at his expense. I didn't have to pay him. And he came up with melding a 24-inch 706 ingot, would you believe? And uh, and then talking to the forging vendors, that ingot was still was a little bit on the long side to help prevent the buckling. What we did is we machined the end of the ingot with a little a short taper, and the, the forging die had a taper in it, and that helped put a moment on the end of the, of the ingot so it wouldn't buckle so easily. And, uh, and Ron and Gordon ended up forging this, this thing, and, uh, and we ended up, you know, we, we had to modify the melting practices because we were getting some segregated regions and stuff like that. But today... That, that With that argon, 
we have these guys like Ober and Duval in France. They melt seven eighteen ingots big enough to make the fourth stage wheel of the nine HA.02. I don't know what that ingot weighs. I don't know what diameter it is. But what we learned in that F program, we, we learned to use VAR and ESR melting practices to produce the final ingot, and we ended up with, a, with an ingot that was free of segregated regions. And before the F machine, that was absolutely unheard of. It was only because these uh, guys like Wyman Gordon and, uh, and Huntington Alloys and Oberon Duval. I, I, I have spent weeks over there at Oberon Duval working with them on what they were doing and how they were doing it in that big forge press they got in France. But that all started because the F machine was going to go with a 706 wheel. And it wasn't just the melting of the ingots. Nobody knew how to machine these big things because hmm. we... They, they could machine a small uh, disc, but uh, the people that machine these big wheels that we have didn't have any experience machining this out, really. We wanted we broached the dovetail and the rim of this wheel. We didn't know how to broach 706. The manufacturing people took it upon themselves to go down and develop. We, we provided them with a bunch of 706 chunks of material, and they worked with the brooch designers in, in the, uh, the tooth spacing and the, you know, the angle of attack and all of that. We weren't even sure that the brooches that we had in Greenville were big enough to brooch 706. But the manufacturing went to work on it, and they made it happen. I, I can't express enough the number of people and the skills, the broad skills, that made that F machine a success. Yeah, just, it sounds just amazing. To make that two-bearing rotor, to make that two-bearing rotor stiff enough, we needed 706 or 718 rotor bolts. Now, how do you roll a thread on a 718, a three-inch diameter 718 bolt? That had never been done before either. But the people that rolled threads, they worked. We worked with them. They worked with us. They ended up developing the process. And you say. Just a little thing like the rolling of a thread became critical to the success of the F machine. Mm -hmm. Because if that thread broke, you lost the continuity of the rotor, the rotor would vibrate, the machine would shut down, it wouldn't be a success. There were so many things that were going on in order to meet the, uh, uh, well, what I wanted to, what I wanted to do with the end up being successful, but to get a successful result. Yeah, but it wasn't me. It was, it was hundreds of people doing really creative things. Right. And that's still true. I went down to Greenville this past spring to see the 9HA.02 prototype. They were gracious enough to take, bring me down there. And the work that those people were doing down there, the individuals, manufacturing, materials, design, you name it, it is not... Combustion kinetics, we're going to a higher pressure ratio in that F machine. And now we had a combustor there, and it was going to run too hot. So a guy by the name of Berkeley Davis, maybe you've heard of him, he came up with the impingement cooling of the transition piece. 
and he came up with the parameters to design that by funding some work at our research and development center in Schenectady. Hmm. And and we still to this day use that work that uh, the R&D center did back in the 80s to design the 9HA.02 impingement cooled transition pieces. It, it still m- makes me marvel at the way so many people came together to make that F machine a success. And yeah, I'm the father of it, but mm-hmm. I didn't design that machine. Right. No, it's an amazing process. Sense? You bet. No, it sounds like a really uh, an innovation that took multiple players and a lot of different people involved, a lot of different engineers, and just needing certain things forced people to come up with innovations that made it work, and and it all came together. So it sounds really interesting and mm-hmm. uh, must have been a great experience. So when you when you look back, like what are your, some of your favorite memories from from your time at GE and, and people you worked with? There's a couple of them. Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of, I mean, I'm really proud of it. When I got involved in gas turbine, there was no such thing as the application of, of uh, linear elastic fracture mechanics. And I went to work on trying to explain some rotor failures that steam turbine had had years before. And I ended up with a fracture mechanics approach that explains those steam turbine and generator rotor failures. And I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper that was ended up published. Uh, I offered it, I forget where, but it ended up in the ASME uh, journals, you know. Uh, it was highly regarded. It was the first paper ever written that applied linear elastic fracture mechanics to rotor design including fatigue. And I'm, I got to tell I am very proud of that. Mm-hmm. I got a copy of it yet in my files. That's great. But um, I just stand amazed at the breadth of technology that's required in a gas turbine. You, you have everything from combustion kinetics, what's going on at the molecular level where fuel and oxygen are being combusted to a machine now that puts out 63% in combined cycle. This is going to, this may sound phony, and I, and it, but it ain't, right? Our society today is better off because of what engineering has produced in the combined cycle gas turbine. We have cleaner as stacks than any other means of, of produce any other combustion means of producing power. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have higher efficiency. We are using a fuel back when I was beginning in this business, we didn't know we had so much gas available. We didn't know there was going to be such a thing as 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 uh, wind turbines and all the rest of that. Uh, and the need for dealing with a, a, a climate that's getting hotter and and more contaminated. But the gas turbine or gaseous fuel is in many ways a an answer for that. Now, I'm not saying that 
it's as clean as a wind turbine. It isn't. Nevertheless, it has a capacity and a potency that the others lack on uh, windless days and cloudy nights. Right. So so the, the gas turbine business has really accomplished a lot to the betterment of society. And I got to tell you, that thrills the living daylights out of me. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's really uh, feels good to have been part of that evolution that got us to this point and, and some of those impressive gains in efficiency. And they're still continuing, you know. Um, all of the oh, turbine yeah. manufacturers are striving for higher efficiency in their combustion turbines and in their uh, combined cycle units. So it's sure. it's still being done. There's still innovation taking place. Oh, yeah, and, and it will continue. I, you know, and I don't mean to uh, to downplay the uh, successes of the Siemens and and uh, Mitsubishi's, et cetera. I, I I I just but but I'm sure they can be just as proud of what they're doing. The interesting thing to me uh, is Mitsubishi was a licensee of Westinghouse. The Mitsubishi engine is a direct derivative of the Westinghouse engine. Mm-hmm. Siemens bought Westinghouse, right? Yep. And the Siemens machine is a direct derivative of the Westinghouse machine, the multiple combustors and doing away with those big southern combustors. GE is still competing with Westinghouse, <laughs> but right now it's Westinghouse has spelt Siemens and Mitsubishi. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. I, I think you've really shared a lot of great information, and I know I don't want to take too much of your time. We've been on the phone quite a while here, but um, is there any last thoughts that you have before we close out the podcast? I guess um, one of the other things that impresses me is the efficiency of design. What the engineers are able to do, and I'm talking about aero engineers, mechanical engineers, whichever, uh, with the finite, especially finite element and some of the fancy aerodynamic programs we got now. The ability of the engineers to be more efficient in their design processes is very, very impressive. It's a long ways away from slide rules. I still have my slide rule in my shop. I still mm-hmm. use it every now and then. But boy, I'll tell you, what, what the engineers are able to do now with the analytical methods and tools they have is absolutely scary. And I guess one last uh thought i know you said you were down to greenville and saw the ha class what's the biggest uh takeaway that you have from that as far as you know what impressed you the most about these new machines the size that rotor weighs 110 tons and you look at that rotor and you see the 3d arrow in that compressor you see the last stage bucket. I don't know what the span is on that thing. It's got to be a mile and a half. It's got cooling holes, the whole span length on it. That last stage wheel out of 718, the size of those machines is so impressive. Mm. And the technology that you see just sitting there. Oh, the other thing that was developed during the, the, the F machine was the ceramic coating, the use of... Um, a plasma arc deposition of ceramics to aid and abet the survivability of the of the of the, of the uh, super alloys 
in those higher fires. We're firing, those point, that HA machine is fired at 2,800 degrees plus, all right? Yeah. The, uh, and I, I thought going to 2,350 on the F <laughs> was a big step. But uh, the, uh, the, that, and that uh, ceramic coating was developed at the R&D center here in Schenectady in the early phases of the, of the F machine. They actually coated some of our buckets for production for the, uh, at the R&D center. And now they're using single crystals, single crystal buckets. Can you imagine? And the 3D manufacturing, manufacturing has played such a tremendous role. I, I, I could go on and on. Well, I think we could probably Anyhow. talk all afternoon hearing uh, stories about how things have evolved over your over your lifespan here. Yeah. But it uh, sounds like you had a great Praise career. Oh, I, 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 I praise the Lord for the career I have. For the family I have, or the health I have, I'm 87 years old and I'm still. But anyhow, okay, hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank no, you very I, much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I really uh, enjoyed this, and I think uh, a lot of listeners are going to find it interesting, too. So thank you so much, Don. Oh, you're welcome.